Amen, amen. Uh, we are really excited that we can continue um, in our series on the kingdom of God, and particularly traveling through uh, this Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, starting in the first section, which is a section known as the Beatitudes. And we're excited to have back for the third time Pastor Dave Johnson, who for 38 years uh, served as the lead and teaching pastor of Church of the Open Door in Maple Grove. It was actually the church that I um, went to when I was in your shoes, when I was in your seats as a college student. And so it's a blessing, immense blessing and privilege to, and the same way that I've received and the deposit that, that Dave has put in me, unknowingly so, and uh, it was a huge part of my formation in that season of my life, that now that he's back and sitting here and with you and speaking to you all. And so I really want to encourage you to lean in, uh, to listen up, and to really receive the word that God will speak through Pastor Dave. And so I want to invite you, would you please join me, giving another warm Northwestern welcome to Pastor Dave Johnson. And uh, I want to invite you to join me in putting a hand out over him as we pray over him together as he speaks to us. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can gather here again together today and for the opportunity now that we can continue in worship through the opening of your word. And we invite you and ask you, blessed Holy Spirit, and dwell us, work afresh in us, illuminate your, your word before us, that we would behold your glory and beauty and that you would awaken within us an appetite for the things of the kingdom of heaven. And thank you for our dear brother, for your son and servant, uh, Pastor Dave. And I pray that as he speaks to us, that you would energize him, that you fill him with your spirit, that he would speak with the freedom, with the fluency, full of truth and grace and boldness and conviction. And Father, that your word pressed through him and his personality to us, Father, would, would reap um, a harvest. We thank you so much for this time, for this space. We surrender to you joyfully. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you for that uh, social distance prayer. That was very good. <laughs> it was not that funny, was it? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1 in Matthew. And seeing the multitudes, that is Jesus, seeing the multitudes, multitudes that he had just gotten done uh, preaching to about the kingdom of God and its accessibility, uh, many of whom in that multitude had been healed by him, seeing the multitude, he withdrew from them, went up on the mountain, and after he sat down and his disciples came to him, he began to teach them, saying... Basically this, I've got some good news and some bad news. That's kind of how I lay out the Beatitudes. The good news is this. Jesus is saying to his disciples, everything you just saw in chapter 4 about the kingdom of God is real. It is accessible to you right here, right now. It's not just heaven when you die. You can enter into life in the kingdom of God where God is in control of your life right here and right now. That's the good news. The bad news is that none of that kingdom life in reality is going to come the way you think or to who you think. The power is not going to flow through who you think because this kingdom that I'm speaking of is not going to come to those who think they know, who look good and know how. I, actually, it's going to come to those who don't look good and don't know how, which is why they come up hungry for this kingdom. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are those who mourn, and we defined mourning a few weeks ago as 
being uh, that dynamic of getting out here what's in here. Blessed are those who quit pretending about what's actually going on in their lives. And blessed are the meek, which isn't weak, it's power under control. When a horse is broken, all of the power and strength in that horse is still there, but now it's yielding to the promptings of the rider, of the master. Blessed are those who have the energy and the strength God has given them, but they're moving and acting under the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the meek. Brings us today to the fourth. Blessed beatitude. People to whom the kingdom comes, turns out they're hungry people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, particularly for righteousness, for what is right, um, which speaks to moral virtue, but also it speaks to diakesune is actually the word for righteousness, and it speaks to moral virtue, but it also speaks to justice, not judicial justice, like guilty or innocent, but restorative justice, hungry for things to be made right, for things to be restored to what is right. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that kind of thing, for they shall be satisfied if they stay hungry and stay thirsty. So staying hungry and thirsty uh, is the key, oddly, ironically, to being satisfied. Notice this. It doesn't say blessed are the righteous who already think they're righteous. That's self-righteous. Blessed are those who are perpetually hungry for righteousness, for something maybe they don't even have right now. They will be satisfied if they stay hungry. I've heard the parable. I actually referred to it a few weeks ago. Luke 18, where Jesus talks about two men who go up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee who prayed thusly to himself, O oh Lord, I thank you, God. I'm not like him, like this tax gatherer over here, like the unjust or the slanderers or the, or the adulterers, because I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get, which in his mind was proof that he was righteous because I fast twice a week and I tithe of all, a piece of everything I get. He wasn't hungry for righteousness. He thought he was righteousness. He was already full, primarily, actually, uh, of himself. And the tax gatherer, um, standing away from the temple, not even willing to lift his head, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's some evidence in that request of hunger for something he doesn't have. The Apostle Paul is a good example of this hunger. Philippians chapter 3, where Paul basically says this. In his, he's kind of identifying or sharing with us the overriding passion and focus of his life. Philippians 3 verse 10, that I may know him. And not just a casual knowing, that intimate knowing is the passion of my life. Um, that is a powerful drive in him and the power of your resurrection. I want to know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering being made conformed to the very image of your death. And then he says this, not that I've arrived, not that I have obtained it or have already become perfect, but one thing I do, says Paul, forgetting what is behind, I press on toward the goal, toward the desire of the upward call of God in Christ. And I don't know if you picked it up. You probably did. Those are the words of a hungry man. 
I press on toward the upward call, and I don't want to stop pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, which brings to question, if, if hungry for righteousness is what satisfies, what kind of righteousness are we talking about? If you stay hungry for it, well, we already know, and I've already kind of indicated some, but we already know it's not self-righteousness. It's not the righteousness of the Pharisees who had reduced righteousness into something that a lot of religious people do. They had reduced it to a self-serving show where they polished the outside of the cup and of the bowl, but inwardly they were full of all sorts of junk. Um, they loved to stand in the synagogue and pray loud and long so everyone would see them. It was a show they were putting on, but inwardly they were full of something else. The prophet Isaiah about that kind of spirit says this into that kind of spirit. I hate your religious show. Um, that's my paraphrase. Uh, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Isaiah 1 verse 11. I've, I take no pleasure in the blood of bull, bulls and goats. In other words, your religious ceremonial stuff. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. The incense you burn is an abomination. To me, I have, I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, even your solemn assemblies. They have become a, a, a burden to me, and I am tired of bearing them. So much so, he says in verse 15, that when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes. Indeed, even though you multiply your prayers and pray even more, um, I, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood, injustice, unrighteousness. You have no mercy. So what do we do? Verse 17, Isaiah still. It's very simple, actually. Um, first, quit <laughs> the solemn assemblies and learn to do good. <laughs> learn to do good and, and to seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow that's Righteousness. Interesting. It may be going through your head right now. James, in his epistle, identifies righteousness and true religion, if you will, as caring for widows and orphans. Isaiah 58, verse 6, the prophet goes on to say, Righteousness is when you're actively involved in loosening the bonds of wickedness, of undoing the bands of the yoke, and letting the oppressed go free, and dividing your bread with the hungry. It's when you bring the homeless poor into the house and clothe the naked with something to wear, cover them. In some, when you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then, says verse 8, your light will break out like the dawn. You will become who God designed you and called you to be, the light of the world. Um, your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will be protected. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. He will partner with you in what you're desiring to do. Then you will cry, and he will say, here I am. So blessed are those who have an abiding hunger, an unquenchable thirst, not just to do what is right, though that is included, but to make things right, 
to restore things in the world. It's fascinating. When Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, you're familiar with this text, I'm sure, uh, kind of announced his ministry. He went to the synagogue in Jerusalem, and he opened the book in the synagogue to the prophet Isaiah. And he read these words, and he was speaking of himself as if he were, and he was, the fulfillment of what Isaiah was saying. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the way you can tell the Spirit of the Lord is upon me is because he has anointed me to preach good news, particularly to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the downtrodden. And blessed are they, therefore, who have an abiding hunger and unquenchable thirst for that kind of thing. Blessed are those who have an unquenchable hunger and thirst for this restorative, redeeming, uh, making things right kind of justice. Blessed are those who deeply desire, I think another way to say it, who deeply desire to make my mission their mission. To take Luke 4 and say, that's what I want to do, cooperating with you, God, by your spirit in me, and his mission is to bring righteousness, to bring restore, restoration to people, men and women, those who are far to bring them near. Um, Glenn Stassen, in his uh, uh, commentary on the Beatitudes, says it this way relative to this restorative justice. Blessed are those who yearn bodily, hunger, for the kind of restorative justice or righteousness, making things right, that brings the powerless and the outcast, the unclean and the untouchable, back to their place in covenant community where they've been welcomed to the table so they can eat now and drink, so they can come to life anew. In language more familiar to us than that, theologically, righteousness is manifested as restorative or redeeming kinds of justice when those who are far off are brought near. When those who are outside are brought inside. And those who have been excluded are now included, included not just by God, but by us. Welcome to our table, invited into our lives. In the larger context, actually, of redemptive history relative to salvation, these words kind of ring true as well. This restorative justice thing at least, is at least part of why Jesus was willing to endure the cross and despise the shame because Jesus hungered and thirsted for those of us who were far off to be brought near. And that's why he went. It was his hunger for this that drove him to the cross. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, Paul says to people like us, that you formerly, formerly you were separate from Christ, verse 12, excluded from the, co co the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants, having no hope and without God in the world, but now, because of the work of Christ, restoring things, you who were far, formerly far off have been brought near. It's the message and the mission of Christ, and it's why he came preaching peace to those who were far away, and, priests, and peace to those who were near, Ephesians 2, verse 17, because he had an unquenchable thirst, and an abiding hunger for righteousness, for restoring things, bringing them back to what he designed. But it's also why um, 
in a more down-to-earth, flesh-and-blood kind of way. Jesus kind of symbolically lived this out, and it's why Jesus physically would invite people to his table who were sinners, because he was symbolically saying, these people far away, I'm bringing them near. I know you don't like it. I'm doing it anyway. The emha'arats, the, the ordinary people, the wrong kind of people. Why did he do that? Why did he invite those people to his table? Here's why. He had an incredible hunger and thirst for righteousness, for making things right, restorative righteousness for those who were far off to be brought near. That's why he confronted the temple system. In Matthew 23, verse 13, that was shutting off the kingdom of heaven from people who were actually trying to enter, why did he confront them? Because he was unquenchably thirsty and hungry for those who were far to be brought near. That's why he touched the leper. Um, fascinating imagery there when no one else would touch a leper in Matthew 8. I'm sure you remember the story. It's actually a great picture of this restorative hunger. Um, and it was more than personal piety that would touch a leper. It was, it was the, the personal piety in Jesus' day that was so bent on staying clean. Remember that? They demonstrated how clean they were by how far they stayed from lepers. So when Jesus touches the leper, He's all sorts of wrong in their minds because he's becoming unclean and he's, he's, his whole deal there was when he touched him, people were aghast. And when he hand, healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, people were angry. So why'd he do it? Here's why. Because he had this hunger and thirst to, 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 to bring people who were far off and untouchable, touch them and bring them close for those far away to be brought near to be, to be made whole, to be restored, if you will. Liver literally gave his life for that. I'm, I'm in a lot of conversations as a pastor, having been a pastor for 38 years with pastors, and, and, and there's this phenomenon in many churches, I'm sure you've probably had sermons on this, and this whole consumer church kind of culture where people come to church to consume uh, religious goods and services is how Dallas Willard um, describes it, making the goal of many churches um, a consumer satisfaction. If you come to our church, we hope you like it. We hope you consume what we have and you walk away <sighs> satisfied. Hmm. Particularly satisfied with us <laughs> and how well we speak and good we sing and all that stuff with what we offer. But what if it's not about being satisfied? What if that's not the goal at all, to be satisfied? What if instead we were able to stir up a hunger for more, for authentic moral virtue that satisfies and real righteousness, restorative justice that is actively involved in making things right in the world, making things wrong in the world right? Several years ago, um, I, I had the privilege, still can't believe I was able to do this, with a small group of pastors to meet with Dallas Willard several years in a row on a, on a weekend retreat. And it was just Dallas Willard and a few of us pastors, and we'd spend a weekend just talking to him. And I remember among the questions that were asked, one was, was this, um, pa pastors speaking very um, freely. And, and the question had to do with what's... Um, 
Why do so many people like us in ministry fall uh, and, 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 and into immoral things and into some sort of scandal and, and they don't finish well? Uh, what's the reason? And he went on to a number of reasons and things that we'd all considered and really wanted to think about and talk about. But the one I remember the most is when he said, I think that sometimes they just get bored. They lose their appetite. They're not hungry anymore for what is right. They just lost when you're hungry for, no longer hungry for what is right, you cannot eat anything. Think about this. The, the uh, biological imagery of hunger and thirst is fascinating because um, <laughs> there's some reasons why people wouldn't be hungry. Um, sometimes if you're full, you're not hungry. I already ate, <laughs> right? And the Pharisees weren't hungry for the kind of bringing people far near. They were, because they were full already. The Pharisees were full of what? Themselves and their own self-made righteousness. So one reason people aren't hungry or thirsty is because they already are full, often of themselves. Another reason is uh, when you're sick. When you're sick, you lose your appetite. Because um, you can be physically sick, but you can be spiritually sick as well. And when we lose our way spiritually and we come up spiritually with the proverbial flu, uh, it's just amazing you're not hungry. <laughs> I don't want to hear more about God. I don't want to hear any more about the least and the lost and um, restoring what has been broken. We get sick, maybe sin sick. And to recover your appetite, we would need to repent and quit eating garbage, maybe. Another reason <laughs> you might not be hungry is because you're dead. Dead people. You ever notice that? Dead people aren't very hungry. That's supposed to be funny. Somewhere they're laughing. <laughs> I, honestly, I mean, this is kind of a confrontation, but if you have no appetite at all for any of this, maybe because it's de you're still dead in your sin. Dead people don't eat very much. They don't have much of an appetite. And so we pray. Holy Spirit, come. Awaken us. Stir up in us. Rekindle in us holy hunger. Um, let me leave with this benediction. Blessed are all of you who didn't know what it was, this thing you so strongly feel, that it was and is a hunger. You've never called it that, but Many of you have this hunger, an unquenchable thirst for righteousness, for restorative justice, for bringing things and people who are far off to bring them near, those who've been excluded to include them. Bless, here's the promise. If that's your hunger, you will be satisfied. That perpetual hunger for that is a satisfying thing, but you need to stay hungry. Let's pray as we close. Father, I thank you for these young men and women who uh, 
I think are hungry, who are at a time in their lives where they may be as hungry as they've ever been for your kingdom to come and your will to be done in their lives, in their dorm, in this world. And I pray in Jesus' name you would stir up in us even more. And even beyond Northwestern uh, University, God, in your church, in your big C, universal church, the people who belong to you, stir up in us holy hunger. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. You are dismissed. Get out of here.